Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. The regular podcast is on a break this week, so here's a chance to listen again, or for the first time, to an episode from our archive. It's a talk by Brian McLaren called Worship That Destroys and Saves the World. It was recorded at the 2019 Church Times Festival of Preaching. On Saturday 17th of April, Brian McLaren will be speaking about his new book, Faith After Doubt, at a Church Times Festival of Faith and Literature one-day online event. For more information and to buy tickets, visit churchtimes.co.uk forward slash events. Faith After Doubt is published by Hodder and Stoughton and is available to buy at the Church Times bookshop for the reduced price of £13.49. Well, I should begin by saying that by my accent, you'll know I'm from the far western colonies that went through a Brexit about in the 18th century and, <laughs> and we're still conflicted about it. Uh, and uh, I, I would ask for your sympathy for what's going on in my country, except I think empathy is probably the better word. Uh, and I'm... Uh, I'm very happy to be here. I haven't been uh, over uh, to England in several years. The last few years, uh, we've had so much trouble in my country, it's kind of felt like the house was on fire and it didn't feel like a good time to leave. And so now I've come here. Uh, But what a great time for preachers to get together. And what a great time to allow ourselves to be awakened to the importance and urgency of our work. Uh, I think we all fight every single Sunday and in between against this sort of tamping down, especially in times when people are worried about declining numbers and so on. We're so desperately worried about offending someone and driving them away that we, we all live with this pressure to be uh, as politely irrelevant and ambiguous and vague as possible. And so, uh, so many times on a Sunday, our people leave choking on clots of ambiguity uh, when uh, they actually need some clarity to help them figure out how to place themselves and live in a world that is on fire. Amen? So that's what we'd like to talk about. Um, And uh, so I would like to talk to you uh, about your role as a preacher in the larger worship experience. And I'd like to talk about worship that destroys and saves the world. For the last 500 years, uh, while we've been happily worshiping Sunday after Sunday, Uh, This beautiful planet has been plundered and raped, treated like a stolen bank account or a trash dump or a sewer, while churches worship on obliviously. And of course, this all continues right up until this present moment. Can you see how much worse off the world will be if we do a better job as preachers, bringing people into a little space 
where they're told that what God really cares about isn't this world, it's somewhere else? Can you feel how if you actually were the creator of the world who cares about the plankton out in the ocean, we often say that the rainforests are the lungs of the earth. That's partly true, but even more the plankton in the ocean are the are the lungs of the earth. Every breath that we breathe, we're breathing the products of trees in the rainforest and plankton in the ocean. If the creator of the universe cares about the breath of this planet, the pulse of this planet, can you see how if for the next 500 years our churches just go on avoiding the realities of what are happening what's happening in our world. Can you see how the creator might wish some people to just leave? Where they'll hear about something that is close to the heart of God. While we've been happily worshiping, the colonial era has happened over the last 500 years. And while good Brits were singing hymns and praying and listening to the world's best preaching, uh, and while American audiences were gathering Sunday by Sunday to say, Lord, forgive me for my sins, and then go out to whip their slaves that afternoon and for the next six or seven days, and then come back again. And every time they confessed their sins, they were certain to not name the most obvious sin by which they lived, not just in the South where they were directly whipping the slaves, but in the North where they were making money from the cotton in the textile mills from the whipped slaves. It's really remarkable to think how much energy people like us, good, sincere people like us, put into their sermons week by week to make sure that that was never addressed for hundreds of years. Can you see how when preachers get together at a time like this, if we just talked about how to improve our preaching craft and become better at doing what we've been doing for 500 years, it would be a tragedy to get better at that. While we've been worshiping and preaching, even in more recent years, there's a global resurgence of white supremacy and ethno-nationalism I had a life-changing experience just over two years ago. I, a young couple who I mentored separately, they didn't know each other, and then uh, I think I played some small part in them meeting each other and then getting married, and they ended up in ministry together in a city, in a small town in the United States you may have heard of called Charlottesville, Virginia. And I got an email from this couple, and they said, you may not have heard about this, but we've had several Ku Klux Klan rallies and white supremacist rallies in our city, uh, and there's a really big one planned for August. Uh, and they said, um, we don't feel that these white supremacists and neo-Nazis should come and take over our city for a day without having the clergy stand up and say that we are not okay with this. And, and uh, that we need to make a statement together. They said, so we've been asking clergy to join us and 
even though it's going to be a dangerous day, we know there's going to be a lot of weapons that day and there are people who are actually planning for violence. We know this because Antifa has been telling us, they, they have infiltrators in these groups and they've been telling us what's, what's coming. Uh, they said, we've had a lot of uh, African-American uh, clergy who are willing to come and put their lives on the line that day. And we have a lot of female white clergy who've been willing to come. We're having a hard time finding white male clergy to come and join us. And so they said, we know it's a long way away, but is there any chance you would come and spend this day with us? Um, it's going to be dangerous. We think there's going to be violence, but would you come? And I, I said, oh, of course I'll come. I just won't tell my wife all the details. <laughs> you've given me, but I'll tell you, uh, I never thought in my life uh, that I would walk down streets in the United States and see Nazi flags being carried and Nazi slogans being chanted. I never thought this. And can I tell you, a lot of the people who were marching that day uh, on, that, uh, on that Saturday were in church the next morning. There's been this resurgence globally. It's, it's not just in the US and the UK. It's, there's a version of it in Brazil and another in Italy and another in Philippines. And there's this resurgence, of course, in Denmark and all the rest. It, we, we see around the world a resurgence of white supremacist ethno-nationalism. And being in a room of mostly white preachers, we have to ask what role we have in, in a moment like this. For 500 years, we've been worshiping without dealing with this. So if we just want to keep doing what we've done, we'll keep getting what we've got. We've been conducting our worship wars, having big arguments about guitars versus organs and charismatic versus Calvinist. But meanwhile, what's happening in our world makes me worry sometimes that gatherings like this can be a weapon of mass distraction so that people argue and care and are energized about religious esoterica uh, and don't deal with the actual issues facing our world a planet on fire, an economy that is transferring not only wealth of the present to the currently wealthy, but the wealth of hundreds of generations into the future, into a small number of people whose names we all know. You know, one of the great blessings, if you want to call it that, of what's happening in my country is it's making clear we thought we were in a democracy and we're finding out that we're living in a global oligarchy and that the power of uh, certain people to pull political strings around the world and, and this realization that the lines of nation states to them are just playthings because the reality is the exchange, not of votes, but of money. And, and this is going on, and we're, uh, we, we, 
managed to not have much to say about it. I, I don't know about you, but I came into ministry because I wanted to deal with the most important realities in the world. I didn't want to be an entertainer to help religious people have a nice experience for an hour a week. You, you realize if we just keep doing what we've done for the last 500 years faithfully, we'll be custodians in this uh, ongoing crisis. One of my friends and mentors, uh, the late Dallas Willard, said our system is perfectly designed to yield the results we are now getting. Profound words and serious words for people who have been, who were, were part of the tradition that was supposed to be custodians of the moral values of your nation and my nation, two, the two most powerful nations over the last several hundred years. Uh, so when we talk about how worship can destroy the world, I think we have to just say, if we would like to do that, we should just keep doing what we've been doing since 1452. Now you all say, hold it, 1492, we all know what that is. We're, what's 1452? In 1452, Pope Nicholas V told the European nations what to do. The document that I never even knew about until I was probably in my 40s, uh, I think now is one of the most significant documents of Christian history. It's not one we're proud of, but it is one that's had profound historical significance. When Pope Nicholas realized that uh, the Muslims were knocking at the door on his eastern flank. He made a strategic decision. He sent out a document that now it's, it was called Dum Diversus, but we call it the Doctrine of Discovery. It was the great commission of Pope Nicholas V. And I'm sad to say it underlies what many of us know as the great commission of Jesus Christ. In other words, the great commission of Jesus Christ was reinterpreted through the great commission of Pope Nicholas V. It became the, the great commission of white European Christianity. Go into all the world, he said. Invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens. That's Muslims. By the way, you know, after September 11th, in my country, a lot of people started asking, why do they hate us? This is why they hate us. Invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Muslims and pagans whatsoever and other enemies of Christ wheresoever placed. So now the entire non-Christian world has been put in the position of being enemies of Christ. And so if we'd like to go against enemies of Christ, uh, we, we're on the side of righteousness and light subdue them, vanquish them, uh, and their kingdoms, dukedoms, principalities, dominions, possessions, and all movable and immovable goods whatsoever held and possessed by them. Movable and immovable goods, it sounds like a tax document or an economic document, and it is. And to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. Suddenly, I read that document and I, the history of my country came into a new light. 
and to apply and appropriate to himself and his successors their kingdoms, dukedoms, countries, principalities, dominions, possessions, and goods, and to convert them to Jesus Christ and his gospel. No, to convert them to his and their use and profit. So this document, the doctrine called the Doctrine of Discovery, the uh, uh, a, a part of a series of documents that came out in the subsequent years. They're the, they're, they were the, the religious documents that launched, that launched the Christian jihad against the rest of the world, that we've kept a secret from ourselves. So when you read the stories of Columbus sailing the world, it wasn't for discovery uh, in some abstract sense. It was to fulfill the Great Commission as it was understood. After Columbus's first voyage, he went back again to Hispaniola and he wrote these words back to Queen Isabella. It is possible with the name of the Holy Trinity to sell all the slaves which it is possible to sell. Here, there are so many of these slaves, although they are living things, they are as good as gold. So there's a history to this Christian obsession with money that puts that values everything from oceans and mountains and soil and air only in terms of money and values human lives and all living things only in terms of money. There's a long history to this. So much so that a living First Nations scholar from Canada, Canada named Wazia Tawan wrote the people of Hispaniola had their lives, had their lives unjustly and savagely taken by, as de las Casas repeatedly notes, professed Jesus followers, and they were not, as we all know, the only ones to meet such a fate. Millions of these indigenous sisters and brothers on Turtle Island were killed at the hands of other Europeans as nation after imperial nation bearing Christ on their lips and crosses on their military standards followed suit. Wazia Tawan elsewhere wrote, in fact, I'll just tell you, this next quote comes from a document that she wrote that I was asked to respond to as a Christian. The publishers decided that what she wrote was too inflammatory, so they didn't end up including it in the book uh, that came out. But I thought what she said needed to be heard, and so I got her permission to continue to use the unredacted version, uh, which I'll read to you now. From this vantage point, Christianity has nothing, absolutely nothing to teach indigenous people about how to live in a good way on this land. In fact, Christians have only demonstrated that there is something profoundly wrong with their cosmology and worldview behind more than five centuries of carnage, carnage that has yet to even slow down. Christians have so much negative history and dogma to overcome within their own tradition. I do not believe the religion is even salvageable. The world is deep in the throes of an ecological crisis based in Western economics, uh, 
of hyper-exploitation, economies of hyper-exploitation. The planet will not survive another 500 years of Christian domination. So brothers and sisters, do you understand that when you gather as Christians in a 500-year tradition of just the last 500 years of Christianity, that if you want to, to restore Christianity to its former glory, you in a good possibility are doing something evil. But if you become the preachers of a new way of being Christian that makes sense in light of our past and in light of our present catastrophes, then suddenly a gathering of 500 preachers is so important. It's going to require us to become more honest and forthcoming about so much of our history that we've kept secret from ourselves or we've minimized, or we've just uh, treated as if it were an, an exception. It's going, to especially, it's going to especially be hard for white Christians like myself who've lived with the privilege that came from our version of Christianity where we wrote the rules and we set the economy and we painted God with white cosmetics. Uh, it's going to be especially hard for us to face this part of our history. And we're going to be tempted to minimize the problems as exceptions uh, at, at every turn. But if we are willing to accept the uncomfortable truth about Christian history, I promise you, I can tell you by personal testimony, if we let that happen, Jesus will appear as more precious and right and valuable and true than we've ever seen him before, but he will also appear as the judge of the religion that bears his name. Not a judge who wants to condemn, a judge who wants to save. So let's just get a little more specific. Worship that celebrates an evacuation plan for us and leaves the earth and them to destruction destroys the world. If we take seriously this evacuation plan gospel, what my friend Diana Butler Bass calls an elevator gospel, I guess it would be translated to a lift gospel here, but it's a gospel that's about escaping the world and leaving it behind. If we were to take seriously the problems that that gospel creates, it would require us to, at the very least, change the lyrics of a lot of our hymns. And it would change the shape of a lot of our liturgy. Uh, and we would, it, would, it would require more than little adjustments on our part. But I think it's what has to happen. Um, because a gospel that teaches us to seek first our own eternal security and personal well-being or salvation means that we break solidarity with our neighbors and we sell out the earth to the highest bidder. You know, I revered my grandfather growing up and I think about him a lot now that I am a grandfather. I revered him, I still do. I, I both of my grandfathers remarkable, but my maternal grandfather especially, I just loved him and uh, he remains one of the most significant people in my life. And I remember being a little boy, we were driving through the state of Florida where I now live, and there were those old-fashioned oil derricks, you know, the 
bob up and down, sucking oil out of the ground. And I asked my grandfather, we were sitting in the back seat of the car, my dad and mom were in the front, they were driving, and I said to my grandfather, what are, what are those things? He said, those are oil wells. They're bringing oil out of the earth to make gasoline for our cars. I said, oh, what happens when they run out? He said, oh, they'll never run out. There's a lot of, that, a lot of gas under there. And I said, well, someday they'll run out. And my grandfather said, Jesus will return before then. You don't need to worry about it. <laughs> and you know, I was a little boy. I revered my grandfather, but in my heart I knew he's probably wrong about that. And of course, I had no idea then that every gallon or barrel that we sucked out of the earth and put into the atmosphere was creating a blanket to trap the radiant energy of the sun, and that, that was creating another whole set of problems. But his answer would have been the same. Don't worry about it. Jesus is coming back. This world is going to be destroyed anyway. It's not important. Worship that puts God on our side as the chosen people and therefore creates a sense of spiritual elitism, religious supremacy, and excessive, unreflective confidence destroys the world because it gives us permission to dominate, exclude, and seek our own interests, even to the harm of other humans and our living, other living creatures, our non-human neighbors whom we are also called to love because God loves. This sense of chosenness and eliteness, nobody articulated it better than the British missionary, Leslie Newbegin, who after spending 40 years of his life in India as a missionary, came back here to England and saw it in a new light. And he, he wrote, the greatest heresy in the history of monotheism is a misunderstanding of election. The idea that election means that God chooses some for elite blessing when in fact election means God choosing some for suffering and service on behalf of all. It's a lot packed into that sentence. A lot packed into that sentence. Worship that frames the story of the universe as a cosmic war that ends in eternal conscious bliss for us winners and eternal conscious torment for the losers helps destroy the world because it justifies this uh, history that I've just talked about. The idea that uh, the winners are absolute winners and the losers are absolute losers and that we divide the world into the winners and the losers and aren't we blessed to be among the winners? So much of our preaching is about patting ourselves on the back and of course we're praising God for us being blessed but do you understand the effect of that uh, on those who aren't considered blessed? is, uh, well, historically, it's, it's catastrophic. Worship that renders us clean and them unclean destroys the world. I wrote about this in a book called Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? And I wanted to write a book about religious identity and, and, and religious violence. And as soon as you start researching that, you quickly come into to uh, uh, contact with the, the, the language of clean and unclean. And as I was working on that book, I went back and reread Acts chapter 10, Paul's encounter with Cornelius, where in entering the house of an unclean Gentile, 
he has a revelation that where, the, where God says to him, you should never again call anyone clean or unclean. What do we do with baptism? Interestingly, he baptizes Cornelius' house, but whatever he was doing, he wasn't saying, now you're one of the clean like me. In a sense, I think he was baptizing them into a new way of living, a new way of seeing the world where we stop seeing the world in those dualistic terms of us and them, clean and unclean. Because the fact is, uh, if you're watching the news of what's going on in my country, suddenly anyone with brown skin or black skin uh, is seen as unclean and you're allowed to put them in cages. Uh, you're allowed, the, 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 the Bahamians who are trying to get in are being turned away now, you know, uh, after this tragic hurricane. Uh, you, you realize that once you call people unclean, uh, you're only a few steps from other things that our history has told us are terrifying. And I know you have similar uh, movements here. And, and we have to say, uh, as preachers, how much responsibility do we want to take for perpetuating those dualistic categories in, uh, in our preaching and in our songs and in our Eucharistic liturgies and in our prayers and in our readings. Uh, worship that empowers toxic masculinity, whether it's bureaucratic or charismatic patriarchy, and the suppression and stigmatization of women and LGBTQ people and others um, destroys the world. If we continue building up this idea of God as the super patriarch, as the super man, as the super macho dude who will come back and really show his enemies what they deserve. If this is the image of God that we continue to perpetuate, an image of God that can be found in the Bible, um, then we will have to say that we uh, will play a role in what that toxic masculinity does that has been empowered by our active or complicit support. Suddenly you realize that when Paul wrote in Galatians that in Christ there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Paul was elucidating the gospel of the kingdom of God that Jesus preached, and this is a gospel that ultimately subverts that kind of toxic patriarchy. And in Jesus' very use of the word father, Jesus is subverting patriarchy, although we have used his use of the word father to reinforce it. Worship that reduces Jesus to a variable in a cosmic uh, damnation salvation equation or demotes Jesus to the level of personal savior destroys the world, even though it has been energized by the evangelical versus liberal uh, tensions. Uh, the fact is, when, when Jesus is, is reduced in any of these ways, uh, isn't it ironic that one of the big debates uh, in the church has been who has the higher Christology? When in a certain sense, who has the higher version of a, a Christ-reducing Christology? Uh, 
the fact is, uh, when Jesus is shrunken to the level of a personal savior who goes along with my personal computer and my personal communication device and my personal playlist and all of my other personal accoutrements, you understand, we're already in the wrong ballpark when we're playing in that game. We're already uh, on the wrong pitch when we're playing that game. And, and uh, we have to rediscover a Christ of cosmic proportions whose message is good news of great joy for all creation. Worship that celebrates magical skyhooks and a predetermined future while guaranteeing that everything is under control right now ends up destroying the world uh, because it allows us to be piously, naively, and irresponsibly complacent about the mess that we're in. My grandfather, uh, who I told you I loved, and you know, his, his worldview, he loved Jesus, which I love about him, but his, the, the framing of that in a, in a story that the, the world is just like a candy wrapper and it's gonna be thrown away, and the important thing, the, the, the candy bar inside, that's like the human soul. It's the only thing of value. Everything else has no value. Uh, that framing of the story and, that, and the idea that what it's all about to have real faith is to be able to pray for a miracle so that the normal laws of nature can be subverted. Do you understand how in an ecological crisis, when our irresponsibility to live harmoniously with our environment, to fit with our environment, by the way, when Charles Darwin said survival of the fittest, he didn't mean the most athletic or aggressive. Fittest meant the most fitting, those that fit in with their environment the best. You understand that when you have this sort of idea that, oh, fitting in with your environment doesn't matter because you can always pray for a miracle. This ends up aiding and abetting the economy that's creating an environmental crisis. Uh, we've got to deal with this. My, my mentor and friend, Alice Willard, said we are not only saved by grace, we are also paralyzed by it. In other words, we developed an understanding of grace and an understanding of miracles and an understanding of God's presence and action in the world that ends up making us all too often piously complicit. And worship that requires us to say and sing, Lord, Lord, but doesn't equip us to do it, Christ taught and modeled, or worship that requires us to believe things about Jesus and even worship Jesus, but not follow him and be formed in his mind and spirit. This is worship that will keep us going in the tradition of the last 500 years and in that way contribute to the ongoing destruction that Wazia Tawan warned us about. But what would happen if we actually saw our worship as empowering us to participate with Jesus in the saving of the world rather than its abandonment and destruction? Now listen, we all know this, at least I know this, I imagine a lot of you feel it too, that so much of the work of Christian ministry is trying to attract a crowd. And the crowd is looking for a certain feeling. And, and your sermon should just be sure not to mess up the good feeling that the music creates. <laughs> and uh, 
so in a way, we've elevated a certain kind of, in some of our churches, it's a certain kind of rock concert, and in other churches, it's a certain kind of classical music concert. And we argue about whether classical music or rock music should be the thing that primarily attracts people. But our ultimate goal is to help them feel good as while the economy rolls on. Uh, and the actual question of how do we help people be good and do good, uh, this really, uh, this just helps keep the whole system going. And uh, uh, I'll have a little more to say about this in my uh, message uh, in the uh, worship service tomorrow evening, uh, late tomorrow. And worship that teaches us to seek forgiveness without sharing forgiveness. Worship that tries to, to achieve a, a forgiveness transaction rather than introduce us into a forgiveness economy. That kind of worship uh, it becomes an evasion of justice rather than a seeking of justice. And again, so much of our theology, Protestants and Catholics for 500 years have been arguing about who has the best way to forgiveness. But it's Protestants and Catholics together that have created the world that we're in. And maybe it's time for both of us to look at this in a fresh way, not seeking first forgiveness, but seeking first God's kingdom and God's justice. And then worship that relies on authoritarian and often quasi-inerrant leaders and compliant and even quasi-cultic members destroys the world because it re renders people susceptible to demagogues and con artists who demand trust and obedience under threat of banishment, punishment, and death. And uh, worship that motivates primarily through fear, guilt, and shame destroys the world because it makes members easy to manipulate through fear, guilt, and shame. And if you see people who are very, very good at manipulating people through fear, guilt, and shame, maybe it's time to say, who taught those people to be so easy to manipulate? Who rendered them so compliant? And uh, so, in summary, worship that is a chaplaincy to an extractive and exploitive economy helps destroy the world uh, because it keeps us straining at gnats while we swallow camels and helps us spiritualize poverty, slavery, sickness, and hunger, but never address actual poverty, slavery, sickness, and hunger. And worship that lives by the donor and therefore dies by the donor because it is afraid to challenge or confront the donor destroys the world. Because at the end of the day, I've come to realize that the donor is Lord. It's funny, a lot of us are really upset how government is run by powerful rich people but we haven't paid attention to how religion is run by powerful, rich people. And uh, if we just want to be preachers to keep that going and, and then to claim that the way we do it is the way God desires it, uh, then we won't ever be able to change it. Uh, and, and so we're at this point, brothers and sisters, where if we want to, if we begin to see how worship can destroy the world, we might then 
be ready to hear what my friend Dallas Willard said also, that if your image of God is unhealthy, the more you worship, the less healthy you will be. Because as Paul said, we'll be transformed into the image of that which we worship. And unfortunately, that's for worse as well as for better. But what Paul saw, the vision he saw, is as we with unveiled faces see the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord the Spirit. His vision was of a worship that transforms us so that we can be agents of transforming the world. Um, but the question is, what is the image that we are gazing at in the mirror? And this, my brothers and sisters, this is my great concern that Sunday by Sunday, the image of God that's being celebrated in song and prayer and sermon is an image that if we're transformed into that image, will become more and more destructive. Just a quick story and then uh, I'll, I'll uh, close. I was uh, asked to preach at a church, oh, this is several years ago now, and the, the pastor said to me, look, the service is really simple. There's a song and then your sermon and then some more songs. So one song, then your sermon. So I'm, the song began, and after the song went on for about four or five minutes, and it seemed nowhere close to being over, I thought, I'm going to have to adjust uh, my sermon. And um, the song, I, remember, I memorized the words. Uh, the words were, oh, how he loves us, how he loves us. That was all the words. <laughs> and... Um, after about four or five minutes, I realized, well, this is going to go on for a while. And I, I, I started paying attention to the words. And at first I thought, well, it's nice that people are singing about God's love. That's, that's wonderful. Uh, although I, about minute five, I started thinking, every time they say the word he, I wonder to what degree that he is, is being a hyper-masculinized masculinized pronoun that's, that's reinforcing in their minds a masculine God. Oh, how he loves us. Huh? And then after about minute eight, I started noticing the word us. And I started, looked around the room and said, this room is almost all white people. And I wonder if unintentionally by saying us in a company of other white people, the us becomes bleached. Uh, and, and I wondered if it also maybe creates us Christians versus them non-Christians or us charismatics versus them non-charismatics or whatever it is. And I remembered at about minute 10, uh, a more disturbing thought still uh, hit my mind. And by moment 12, minute 12, it really hit me. If these folks need to sing for 13 minutes about how God loves us, who convinced them that God hated them so much? <laughs> that they need to be convinced that God actually loves them. And uh, so uh, a whole lot of people, because they have this sense that the kind of worship we're doing, whether it's the kind that you consider better or worse, a whole lot of people are saying both kinds look like they're destroying the world to me. Whether you have the better or worse form of worship that's destroying the world, they don't really care. They're basically saying, I'm done with the whole thing, but can I tell you, I don't think we're better off taking people out of our churches and putting them in the hands of a blonde political leader. 
I don't care where he's from. Uh, you understand, I, I, taking people out of our churches and letting them only be formed by Facebook and Twitter or only be formed by this or that advertiser or only be formed by this or that ideology, I don't think we're in a better place. We're only left with the same old stuff and the same old people in control. You understand? Uh, that's why I think we have to imagine worship that can save the world so that every experience of worship, every element of every experience of worship actually aim to transform us more into the spirit of justice, joy, and peace. It makes me want to ask what kind of worship could actually form people into be the kinds of people that our world desperately needs right now. What kind of worship, what kind of preaching would do that. And the person who I would like to let us, uh, I'd like to leave us with is this young woman, you all know uh, Greta Thunberg already. Can I make a confession? Through most of my years as a preacher, I had another preacher over my shoulder. He was my, my example preacher, and every one of my sermons he was critiquing in my imagination. You know what I mean? He was like my inner critic preacher. It might be your seminary professor, it might be some, you know, but we all, I'd like to invite Greta to become the person on our shoulder as we preach. Greta said, you may, you say you love your children above all else, and yet you are stealing their future in front of their very eyes. Uh, Greta said, uh, I love this, she said, uh, people tell me I should study to become a climate scientist so I can solve the climate crisis, but the climate crisis has already been solved. We already have all the facts and solutions. All we have to do is to wake up and change. And she said, I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic and act as if the house was on fire. And so I'd like to imagine uh, Greta having a word to us about our preaching for this world that is being destroyed by the current system, political, economic, with its religious chaplaincy. Uh, and I would dare to wish that the world's most powerful, let's say Christianity's most powerful leaders, some of whom you recognize, I would wish that they would listen to Greta, that a little child might lead them. And if they were to listen to Greta, I'm just imagining this. Could you imagine if the greatest religious leaders of Christianity, the most powerful uh, white male leaders of Christianity, would say, in light of our current global emergency, we hereby call on the Christians of the world to refuse to conduct worship as usual, and instead we call for a time of creative disruption and liturgical and missional innovation. Could you imagine if they were to say, we urge every Christian around the world to rediscover God as the loving presence who beckons us to grow beyond personal, racial, religious, national, and human selfishness. We ask all the Christians of the world to rediscover Jesus as the enfleshed word who receives, who, who reveals God's embodied solidarity with all creation. We invite all Christians to rediscover the spirit as God's creative breath hovering over and moving through all of creation to foment justice, joy, and peace. We urge all Christians to rediscover the gospel of good news of great joy for all people 
but first for the poor and ultimately for all creation. Um, if if uh, they were to uh, say to all of us, stop doing business as usual, but don't criticize what others are doing. Instead, you improvise, create, and adapt. Stop being so afraid of breaking rules that made perfect sense in the distant past. Instead, fear repeating the failures of the past and present in the uncertain future. Show the same creativity, freshness, and boldness in your time as your ancestors did in theirs. Dare to say you have heard it said, but... Don't be slaves to the same old thing. Don't merely tend the tombs of the prophets. Behold, God is doing a new thing and calling forth a new generation of leaders to face the current global emergency. And preachers, that's why I would urge you to, to think of the people who are trying to forge into this new territory and to say, I would like to loan my voice as a preacher and as a worship leader and as a custodian and curator of public worship. I would like to be part of the people who are taking this moment seriously. And I'd like to be part of worship that saves the world. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.